You're listening to the Grace Covenant Statesville audio podcast. So there's a term that's become quite prominent this past year, at least for me. I don't know about you. It may be fairly common to you. It's the term trigger words. You ever heard that? You know what that you know what it is? So a trigger word is an emotionally loaded word or an expression used to, provo- used to provoke a psychological reaction in readers or listeners by involving their imagination. You hear the word and your mind just starts going, and there's, but it's an emotion. It's not a cognitive response. It's an emotional response that happens. Now, there's some of those trigger words could actually be very happy, could be very positive, like um, vacation or ice cream or I, I know for my wife, chocolate would be a trigger word that evokes a very happy emotion. And if you really want to get good, chocolate ice cream is uh, one that would work there. But Now, the fact is that some trigger words and what we've discovered, whether we're watching the news, whether we're engaged in people on uh, conversation or what we see on Facebook, some trigger words are that cr- they evoke much more powerful emotions than that, don't they? So what might be some trigger words that you've become aware of this past year? That's an open question, so you can actually feedback, and it would be appropriate to talk in church. Mass. I'm sorry? Mass. mass. Who, who can't hear the word mask? And it's like, there's some emotion, positive or negative, but yeah, there's, that's not a really neutral term anymore, is it? Who would have thought mask would have that effect? Well, somebody else mentioned something? COVID. COVID. Yeah, COVID. Vaccine. Vaccine, yes. Whew, that's a big one. That can create some really big emotions for us as well. Liz, you keep... <laughs> Privilege. That's, a, that's one that evokes um, some different thoughts or emotions uh, as well today. Um, yeah, so I just jotted out, you know, um, another one for me that, that creates is, is racism. It just creates... Again, I'm not, I'm, not quali- I'm not qualifying the words. I'm just saying these are words that create emotion um, in us and... So today we're going to talk about what might be a trigger word for some, justice. Now, before I jump in, I need to say two things. Um, And although I work really hard on my talks, um, you know, that, you know, as far as how to say it, what to say, how to phrase it and things. So it's still very possible that I may say something that doesn't sit quite right with you. Um, So in that regard, let me just say up front, up, up, up front that I'm not trying to upset anybody. Um, I have no agenda. Um, as I work through this, I think you'll see my approach. I think it's reasonable, makes sense. Um, but if by chance you find yourself being triggered <laughs> as I talk, come talk to me. Maybe not right after church, but give me a call. Send me an email and say, hey, can we talk about it? Because more often than not, what happens is, Either I said something incorrectly, and that happens, um, where I, I say something where I think I'm saying something clearly, and it's just not being communicated well. And sometimes there's just a misunderstanding. Um, and so I just want to invite you that there's always an open door uh, for those kind of conversations. Um, the second thing I want to say is this. There is absolutely no way, absolutely no way that I can do justice to the topic of justice in 25 minutes or so. Um, and so we're going to 
I can't say we're going to take a deep dive in everything, um, but we're going, to, we're going to talk about quite a few things here. But just know that there's, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that I can't cover everything in this topic. So with that being said, I do have two goals for my time this morning. So by the time you leave here, here's two things I hope uh, have happened. One is that I have a chance to provide you with some context for why things are the way they are in our culture today. To give you some sense of how do I understand this chaotic mess that we see in the news, that we hear, that we're, that's just so prevalent in our culture today. Um, let me also say that um, I am leaning heavily, um, besides the Bible and what the Bible says, and we're, we're going to dive into that pretty well, um, but also the writings of Tim Keller. Tim Keller wrote four articles last summer uh, dealing with racism and justice that I just, I think Tim Keller, in my mind, is the foremost Christian theologian in America today. Just a phenomenal, he's a pastor, was a pastor until he stepped back uh, here a couple years ago in Manhattan. Just a phenomenal mind, loves Jesus passionately. Um, so if you're interested in those articles, let me know. I'll send them to you. I got them, I got them copied in Word documents, and I'm happy to send them to you if that would be interesting. So, um, but that, so that's one thing. I just want to bring, provide context to what I see happening in our culture today. Um, the other one is I want to answer the question, what does the Bible have to say about justice? Everyone else has an opinion. What does the Bible have to say about justice? See, I'm of the conviction that only biblical justice is comprehensive enough to address the needs of the human condition. Only the Bible is able to do that. So with that in mind, I would actually like to pray now at the very beginning, not later on after I read our main primary verse. Um, But I just want to commit this time to the Lord. Father, uh, as we've approached this time in our gathering, um, I just pray for your presence, for your Holy Spirit to be very present, to, um, that I would say uh, things clearly um, and that people would hear clearly, that your Spirit would work in all of us, that we'd be encouraged, um, but Father, I'll maybe even challenged as well. Uh, but Lord, we want you and your Spirit to be prominent um, in this time uh, as I talk here, we pray. So again, we're just very grateful for all that you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. So probably the biggest challenge to addressing injustice in our society today is the fact that we have competing visions of what justice looks like. I mean, think there really is no consensus as to what justice means. There's a lot of voices and a lot of noise out there competing with one another. Now, what we need to realize is that behind all these viewpoints and perspectives of justice is a worldview. There's a basic philosophical understanding of how they view life and how they view reality, how they view the world that, that leads to some of these conclusions and lead to some of these opinions. Now, almost all of the things that we're hearing today, all the different thoughts and opinions can be traced back to the 1700s in, 1700s in Europe, the Enlightenment period. The stream of thought, the things that were being said and thought about at that period of time have been... The the ripple effect is what we're seeing now uh, today. Now, part of what was happening back then, if you're familiar with world history or uh, not so much U.S. history, but especially European history, this was the height of the kings and the the empires. Um, And we had the the thing that the the, the Reformation had occurred. um, So we did have the split between Protestants and um, Catholics, but the Catholic Church itself was intertwined with political power. 
They were, you know, the Pope was kingmakers, uh, that he would, the, the power. And so the, when, what was happening there is that the, 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 quite often we had this idea of the divine right of kings. That a, I'm not just a king by birth. I'm a king because I, I've been chosen by God, which for many kings and men, I'm untouchable. I can do whatever I want because I'm called by God and you have no right or position to challenge me. And the injustices of what we were seeing happening during those time periods were significant. We also saw that because of that conflict that you even had neighbors within countries, you had neighbors, Catholics and Protestants and fighting. Part of what we saw during the Enlightenment period was simply an attempt to try and figure out if there's a way for people to live together with different religious opinions. In response to that, came those, can we figure out a, a way of life without God? Again, it wasn't anti-God per se. It was just saying, how can we live life in a way that you and I can coexist in our, our faith? Because, it, I mean, tens of thousands of people were persecuted and died in that time period because, simply because I'm Protestant or I'm Catholic. And if you were in the wrong neighborhood, you literally could have your life taken at that point in time. And so part of the enlightenment was to say, we've got we've to figure this out in a way that we can coexist together. Unfortunately, that path led them to seek morality and justice and all those things based on reason. So they didn't need God. So we can, do, you know, we can get by without God. And as most trains of thought, it's, it's not just the initial thought that's the thing. It's the subsequent generations of thinking that become further and further away from what the original thought was. And so we have people like David Hume, a Scottish philosopher at the time. He took it even further. And he said the basis for moral decisions was not reason, but sentiment based largely on our emotions. Does that sound familiar today? Reason isn't the thing. It's our emotions. How do you feel? That's what it matters most. And today we have a culture where all truth and morality is determined by a culture based on personal feelings and preferences. But again, you can trace that idea, trace that thought all the way back to the 1700s in Europe. There's a huge problem with that particular worldview. Just huge problems. That's Christ followers that we would say, the pro, you know, simple, simple things like this though. What happens when your, world, when your truth conflicts with my truth? Who wins? Or without God, here's the, here's the thing. Without God, you have no basis to, to critique or criticize any other person or culture. There's no basis for right and wrong. So what is the standard upon which you are critiquing that? And that way, that's why today we have so many multiple views of justice that struggle with one another. Now, for some, justice is about power. And the only way to get justice is to control speech, to despise existing power cultures, and to marginalize those groups deemed to have power. So the whole thing about justice is, I want power, you can't have it, we need to make a switch. Any means necessary is okay. What's ironic, though, is that they're free to act in the very ways that they're condemning going on here. But that's one of the mindsets today about justice is that it's all about power. That if I could just have power, then there would be justice in the world today. Or if certain groups would have power, then there would be justice in the world. Some, so for some though, justice isn't about power. It's about happiness. 
that if everyone could be happy, then there would be justice in the world. And in order, we realize that everyone can't be happy, so we have to kind of go with the majority. If the most of the people could be happy, then, then that's a good thing. So majority wins, majority rules. And, <clears throat> but what's really problem with that, again, without God, there's, there's no basis as to right and wrong. And it's naive to think that the majority will always choose to do right. I mean, most Germans were okay with the treatment of Jews in Germany during World War II. Even here in the U.S., most Americans were just fine with the treatment of the Japanese and German camps during World War II. Just because the majority says, hey, this is okay, doesn't make it's okay. There needs to be a different standard. There needs to be a standard. So some are, some are concerned about justice and the sense of power. Some, it's about happiness. For some, the big issue for them about justice is fairness. We want everything to be fair. And in this context, though, it's to have just and fairness, it's okay for the state or the government to redistribute wealth through taxation and government control of markets. That's why the government can control human rights. That's why we have ideas with free education, medical care. All those things have to do with fairness. Now, here's the ironic thing. Much of this one is grounded in Christian values. They're Christian values without God. They don't recognize that the reason why they think that way is because of the influence of the culture that they've grown up and that they're now rejecting and wanting to turn back on. But that's part of what's happening there. Now, before you get too comfortable and say, yeah, that's not none of me. I'm none of those, none of those there. I'm not worried about power or happiness, friends. I get that. There's another view of justice today that's about freedom. And that if the government would just leave everyone alone, then there would be justness in society today. <clears throat> um, you know, it's again, un, uh, you know, small government, unregulated, unregulated market. The problem with that, it's very, very individualistic. Again, it's, it's a worldview without God. We don't need God. And even I've, what I've discovered is that many Christ followers still embrace that viewpoint. Um, but what they miss out is the fact that, that it's still very individualistic. In the life, it's not consistent with the values and life we see in Scripture. So each of these worldviews emphasizes human thoughts about justice with little or no consideration for God or for the things of God. And as I've already mentioned, that only biblical justice is comprehensive enough to address the needs of the human condition. Biblical justice is rooted in the very character of God. So it's not a theory. It's not something else. It's a reflection of who God is. And God is never anything other than just. Now, God's justice in the, what we see in the Bible has two components to it. God's justice is, um, is, two, is two things. One, it's restorative. So those who've been oppressed, those who have been victimized, those um, who have been subject to oppressive powers, God stands against that. And he stands against perverting the justice that is due the poor, slaying the innocent and righteous He's against accepting bribes, oppressing the alien, the widow, and the orphan. He restores the victims of injustice. That's part of God's justice. It's restorative. Part of it is retributive. Um, God does punish those who have perpetrated injustice on others. 
So he will stand against those who are perpetrating injustice. But part of justice also means raising up and restoring those who have been subject to injustice. Here's the other thing we recognize very quickly when we get the New Testament. Jesus embodied God's justice from the moment he began his public ministry. In Luke chapter 4, we see it again towards the front end that, that uh, uh, Jesus went into the temple. And uh, in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, it says, He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of Lord's favor. In verse 20, it continues on. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is talking, he's reading from the prophet Isaiah. 700 years earlier, Isaiah wrote that about what's happening, about God's justice and what God was looking for. And Jesus said, what I, was Isaiah wrote 700 years ago? That's me. I'm all about that. This is what I'm about. From the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus recognized that role and that part of what he was to do. And we discovered Jesus leaned on Isaiah a number of times and we're familiar with his writings and referred that because um, it wasn't just Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58. Um, we find that the, the prophet said this, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Again, that was part of the ministry of Jesus from the very beginning. It wasn't just to make people feel good. It wasn't just to die on the cross for their sins. Part of his work of coming and bringing the kingdom of God to earth was restoring justice to those who had not received it. Now, as Christ followers, we are children of God. And while we live in the U.S., our primary citizenship is in his kingdom, not this one. And as citizens of his kingdom, we're expected to be representatives of the king. And as his representatives, we cannot separate Jesus from the issue of justice. A few other observations about biblical justice. Justice, the word justice in a couple different forms occurs more than 200 times in the Old Testament. So this was not just uh, one verse, you know, and then that was it. This was throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Over and over again, justice is discussed within a context of caring for and taking on the cause of widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. Those who were most vulnerable in society at the time. So what else can we say that justice looks like as seen in the Bible? I think biblical justice is marked by radical generosity. Radical generosity. Uh, In one of the articles that Keller wrote, as I referred to earlier, he said, while secular individualism says that your money belongs to you and socialism says your money belongs to the state, the Bible says that all your money belongs to God who then entrusts it to you. The biblical model is that of a steward. 
That as a steward, you have freedom, you have resources, you have power, you have capacity, but you're not to use them for yourself. You're to use them for your master. Jesus told that parable. In fact, we looked at it just a couple weeks ago. You use your gifts and talents for the benefit of the master. And as stewards of the resources God has given us, those resources belong to us, but yet they don't. They belong to him, and we're to use them for his purposes. We also see a couple of things in, related to this in the Old Testament. Every seven years, you realize this, in, in the areas, every seven years, all debts were forgiven. So whatever debts you had accumulated were wiped clean after seven years. I might vote for that one. <laughs> uh, that's pretty cool. I mean, you know, that's, uh, there's, uh, but, but here's the thing. Oh, I'm not going to go down that path. So um, <laughs> another thing, every 50 years, all properties, it was the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, all property went back to its original owner. So if you had to sell property because you needed money or whatever, and, and at the end of 50 years, that property came back to you. Again, that, that created all kinds of things. I mean, if I'm buying property, you know, five years before Jubilee, it's like, wait a minute, why am I giving you money to, do, you know, I'm sure that was part of the negotiation. But, but again, the point here was that this idea of generosity, of giving back, of trying to care for people in a way that didn't destroy them. How can we support one another in a way that makes all of us stronger, not weaker? Now, see, human nature is this, that you make all you can. Make as much as you can, as long as you can make it. And then, out of your, gener- out of your surplus, you can be generous and give to those who might have need. But that's not what we see in Scripture. We see in Deuteronomy that, that the landowners are told, you are not to harvest the edges of your field. You're to leave that for the widows, the immigrants, the foreigners, the orphans, for them to come and harvest. And um, at the end of at the harvest time, so that they could come, and the word they use is glean, that they could come and harvest and get food through their own labor. So it wasn't, they weren't, it wasn't charity. They had to go harvest. They had to participate in it. But it was still, there was this cause and effect relationship between the landowner and the people who desperately needed it. That was very, I use the word symbiotic in that sense, that the landowner, that there, there was an expectation that this is how they allowed people. And it was okay for people to do that. In the Bible, justice and generosity are intertwined out of love of God and love of neighbor, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves and advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Let me say that again. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community, whereas the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. And we just see that constantly, time and again, throughout Scripture. On the political left, which, again, if you go the far enough, it gets socialism. Money is the state's, and the distribution to the needy is involuntary. On the other side, on the political right, I guess the extreme might be libertarianism, where they just want no, go- no government. Money is yours alone, and any giving is voluntary and optional. In the Bible, generosity is an extension of one's relationship to God. Your money is your own, and no one should take it from you. 
However, you have a moral obligation to both God and your neighbor to use your money unselfishly and with great generosity to love others with it, according to both your ability and their needs. So biblical justice is marked by radical generosity. It's also marked by universal equality. Now, I wrestled with using the term equality as we were talking about this. It's another trigger word. Um, that we see in our culture today until I realized that we're talking about equal in the sight of God. That, that makes perfect sense. So whether you belong to groups like Antifa or groups like Proud Boys, all of them are made in God's image. Jesus died for every one of them. Biblical justice requires that every person be treated according to the same standards and with the same respect, regardless of class, race, ethnicity, nationality, gender, or any other social category. Leviticus tells us, you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Deuteronomy 16, you shall not show partiality and you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. The biblical ideal that every person had equal dignity and worth was unheard of in the Greek and Roman world. Israel, in that part of the world at that time in history, this was unknown idea or concept. And yet it's everywhere in scripture. Proverbs 14, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Proverbs 22, rich and poor have this in common. The Lord is maker of them all. Time and again, we see Jesus model this value. The Samaritans were seen by Jews as racial inferiors. And yet twice, Jesus places um, Samaritans on the same level as Jews in their relationship with God. Jesus nearly touched off a riot when he declared that God loved Gentiles as much as Jews. And he reached out to lepers who were social outcasts and he touched them. Defying the contemporary social prohibitions against such contact. And he exhorted his disciples to not only be generous to the poor, but but to welcome them into their homes and their families. Every person you see throughout your day is made in the image of God. Every person that we encounter every day is made in the image of God. Lastly, biblical justice is marked by life-changing advocacy. Proverbs 41 says, blessed is the one who gives action. I'm sorry. Blessed is the one who gives active consideration to the weak and to the poor. Now in this context, consideration is the three actually components that are conveyed in this one word. One is that they pay close attention to the weak and poor. They notice them. I've, uh, I've, it's interesting, part of a class I took on seminary, um, we had to actually um, engage with homeless. Um, and there's a couple of different ways they recommended that. But the thing I heard most often that they found, most, people who are homeless, the thing they found most dehumanizing was that no one would look them in the eye. That you always, everyone would turn their way and they didn't. Um, and you see that even today. You're, you're coming off an exit and there's someone there with a sign, help, needy. I mean, when was the last time we had, Part of us, we, we're not wanting to look them because we're afraid if we do that, they'll come over. 
but we don't acknowledge that they even exist. So to give them consideration, we pay close attention to the weak and poor, and we seek to understand their condition. Sometimes we jump to conclusions very too quick about causality of their condition. But then uh, the third component of this word consideration is that they spend significant time and energy to change their life situation. Blessed is the one who gives active consideration to the weak and the poor. The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. While we are to treat all equally and not show partiality to any, we are to have special concern for the poor, the weak, and the powerless. So the call to advocacy assumes that the poor and the immigrant have equal rights. As humans, they're, they're, they're equal. And we also need to assume the fact that, that our fallen world, that in our fallen world, it's highly uneven distribution of opportunity and resources. I just see that. Any of you who've traveled internationally, you don't even have to travel. Of course, you can, even parts of here are Charlotte. You're born into this family or this family, and your life is completely different. You're born in this neighborhood or that neighborhood, this culture or that culture, completely random in that regard. But I think we would agree that it's uneven distribution of opportunity um, and resources. And I think we also have to recognize and accept the fact that the oppression does exist. It does exist. Jeremiah 22 says, protect the person who is being cheated from the one who is mistreating them. Protect foreigners, orphans, and widows. So we are acting justly and being an advocate when we take action to meet the material need of someone's life. When we empower others to gain self-sufficiency and when we take on the social structures that disadvantage certain groups. We get hung up in the term social justice. And so for many of us, we just, we, we turn off. We disengage because of the political manifestations of that. What we have to realize is that that is not God's heart. Now, it doesn't mean that we buy into and accept everything that's being said. We have to, what we need to do is look at this issue from God's perspective. What does the Bible say about this particular issue? And, and, is there any truth in the claims that are being made that maybe I'm just currently blind to because of my background, my experience, my understanding, I just don't see it. So we can agree and care about, or, and we can agree about justice. Where we disagree usually is in the application of it. All right, what's the solution? Uh, Stan and I, he's an East Lincoln um, campus pastor, and we were talking this week, and Right? How deep do we dive into this? And we decided not very deep. <laughs> In other words, we're not going to prescribe you like, here's what we need to do. Here's what, you know, and we just said, no. So he, I love this quote from um, Abraham Kuyper. Um, I, I wish I could tell you when he wrote it. But he said, the institutional church's job is to make disciples rather than change society. Okay? But... It has to form disciples in such a way that they go out into the world to do justice. I love that. It's a, it's a church's job to make disciples, not to change society. But the disciples that we're making need to be such that they go out into the world to do justice. And why? Why is that? Because that's the heart of our Heavenly Father. 
We can't escape it. Because of our love for him, justice should be important to us as well. So what does that mean? So what do I want, what do I, how do I want to encourage you? And what does that mean for us uh, in, the, in the time ahead? I think the first thing is that listen and learn to be informed. Listen and learn. Ask questions. Uh, for, for everyone for me is help me understand how you came to this conclusion. Help me understand the thought process that went into this. Because when they rewind the tape, because sometimes I react to the statement. I, I react to the trigger word. Wait, wait. Help me understand what you mean by that. Help me understand how you got here. Oh, okay. I get that. I, may, I still may disagree with th- their conclusion, but I have a better understanding of the context. Secondly, allow God's word to be your guide. Not the 6 o'clock news. I say 6.30 now, wouldn't it? 6.30. Or it's 6 o'clock local, 6.30 national, all the national news. Yeah, it's not all day. I know, I know. I, 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 I'm over 50, so I get to So it used to be, yeah, local, then the national news at 6.30. Um, and by all means, please don't get your information from Facebook. Um, <laughs> listen and learn to be informed. Allow God's word to be your guide. And put your faith into action. Whatever that might be. Whatever that might look like for you. And again, each of us are in different situations. We have different opportunities, different connections, different contexts. But as Christ followers, we're not given the freedom to just stand by and not do anything. When we see it. Again, I don't know what that means. I I really don't. Um, I'm not wired to pick up a picket's sign and go protest in front of a bill. I, but what does that mean for me? I am the kind that would write to Congress and say, hey, this is a problem. Here's what, we, here's what I want to see happen. What does that look like for you? Some of us are bullhorn people. We talked about that last week. Some of us aren't. What is it for you? Maybe, and, and maybe it's just simply I'm making lunch, a big lunch for the guy who's begging at the exit, and I'm going to take it to him, and that's my way of helping what is God saying to you? God doesn't give us the option to be neutral. That's not what we're called to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so very grateful for your word. <clears throat> and um, it, for, for, for many of us, it's just, it gives us some sense and, and um, order in this culture of chaos and disorder. And to know how to think. And it gives us that stability, that platform in which we can rest and and find comfort and peace. And at the same time, Lord God, your word is very challenging. You don't let us off the hook. Um, You don't just say that because some of those things out there are a little crazy that we can just step back and do nothing. You call us to engage. And so, Lord, I don't know what that looks like for some of us. I think for some of us, it's going to look very different. But God, I just pray that that need to engage, that we would be people who care about justice for others, that we would stand against it when we see it, that uh, when we encounter it, uh, whether it's in our neighborhoods, whether we're standing in line at the grocery store, that we wouldn't be passive, not because we're political activists, but because we're child of the king and because this is who you are and this is on your heart and this is what you love and this is what you want and this is what we want to do as well. So Lord, again, thank you uh, for the time we've had to to just talk about these things and I just pray God again from the days ahead that you would continue to uh, 
um, speak to us um, and that we would wrestle with these issues in the time ahead. And we just continue to commit all these things to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.